0: Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? I want to add my thanks to Tom's for your kindness to us. We really enjoy our ministry. And I want to add while you're turning also my invitation to come to my house for all of you people who are in any way considering missions or thinking hard or praying hard about missions God does great things at those missions in the manse. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 19 to 20. The last two verses of last week's text, which we said were too good to cram on to the end. And so they get their own Sunday. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, last week, in verses 13 to 18, what we saw is that God goes the extra mile so that we have strong encouragement... To lay hold on the hope that we have in heaven. And the extra mile that he went was that he not only gave a promise to Abraham and to his descendants, all those who have the faith of Abraham, but he gave an oath. And he not only gave an oath or swore that he would do this, but he swore by that which is the most valuable, the most precious reality in the universe, namely himself. So by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, we who have fled to him for refuge might have strong encouragement to lay hold on the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's verse 18, the last verse of last Sunday's text. So what he wants from us is that we hope and that we be strongly encouraged to hope. And that to that end, he might promise and swear that he will do it. So we ask, as a kind of bridge between last Sunday and this Sunday, what does it mean to lay hold on hope? Verse 18, you see that at the end of verse 18? We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. That's not something your hands do. That's something your heart does. And heart work is strange to us. Because Paul teaches we are all spiritually dead. And until we are awakened by the Spirit, heart work is a mystery. It's It's, it makes no sense when you say do something, but you don't, it's not something you can do with your legs or your hand or your eyes or your arms or your computers. It's just heart work. You can do it frozen, paralyzed and do it completely. So when I get done talking about heart work, people often come up to me and they say, how? How do you do that? If it's not something I do with my hands and it's not something I do with my feet, but it's a laying hold on hope with an inner thing, what do you mean? How can I take any steps? <laughs> Which you usually do with your feet. But you're not going to do it with your feet. So I'm going to give you six answers to that question as a Two or three minute summary of last week's practical application. Number one, meditate on the greatness of this promise from the Bible. The greatness of it. Number two, meditate from the Bible on the surety of it. This is head work I'm talking about. Head heart work. Meditation thinking about the greatness of it from the Bible, thinking about the surety of it from the Bible. Thirdly, pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, would so stir you and open you that as you meditate on greatness and surety, it would move you, move you, not just leave you untouched and unmoved but that you would find rising in your heart affections appropriate to the greatness and the surety. That's number three. Pray, pray, pray. Incline my heart, O God, to your testimonies and not to getting gain. I love that prayer. I pray it over and over again. Guard me from the love of money. Give me a love for the Bible. I mean, isn't it remarkable that David prays that? David, a man after God's own heart, has to pray, keep my heart tilting Godward and not moneyward. If David had to pray it, I gotta pray it, you gotta pray it. Pray for heart work. Fourth, consider Christ and how much he's done in his suffering and bleeding and dying for you to secure your future. And fifth, consider Christians. Dead Christians in history and living Christians who have laid hold on hope and imitate their example. By being inspired by it. For example, in 1934, in China, 28-year-old John Stam and his wife Betty, stripped to their underclothes in great shame, were being led to execution by the communists. In ten minutes, he would be beheaded before his wife she would fall on top of him. She would be beheaded. And their one-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, would be miraculously saved and escaped from China. On the way to the execution, someone asked him, Where are you going? And he laid hold on hope with heartwork and said, We are going to heaven. When I read that on the plane flying out to Oakland on Friday... What that did to me, to get me ready to speak to the ACMC Missions Conference in Walnut Creek, was so powerful. So I commend it to you. Get Christian History Magazine, if you you don't have anything in your house, to tell you stories. Of the great heartwork of the saints of God in the past. Buy some books in our bookstore. Get Christian History Magazine. Sign up for missionary magazines that tell the contemporary triumphs of heart work among the nations. And the, here's, here's number six. Go to your small group tonight and tell the stories. Open your heart up to receive the stories. Pray for each other. In other words, take the first five of my suggestions, meditate on the greatness, meditate on the surety, pray for an inclination, consider Christ, consider other Christians. Take those five and do them for each other tonight in a small group. That's what small groups are all about. Helping each other do heart work. Heart work isn't meant to do alone. You do do it in your heart. But our hearts are always stirred by impulses from outside. Especially other people who direct us to greatness and to surety and to Christ and to saints and to prayer. God designed us as a body. Hands help shoulders and feet help hips and tongues help stomachs. And we're a body. We can't do the heart work alone. Get in a small group. If you don't have a small group and what I'm saying right now triggers that sense of need, David Livingston oversees 50, 60 small groups. We'll create one for you if we have to. Talk to him. Okay. That's summary of last week's application. Let's move towards this week's text. This writer is so zealous to get God's encouragement for your hope into you that he grasps for another image of hope in verse 19 and namely the anchor. Let's read this again. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul and then he describes it in three ways both sure, number one And steadfast, number two, and three, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's the anchor? The anchor of our soul, it says, is this hope that he just referred to in verse 18. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul. But we got to be more precise than that because hope can be used in at least three ways in my vocabulary and I've seen them all in the Bible. One, hope is a feeling, a strong sense of expectation and confidence. Like we say, I hope that it won't snow next Sunday. That's not Christian hope because it's uncertain. Christian hope is, I have a strong hope that I will enter into glory because Jesus has bought it for me. So, But that's an inner experience, a subjective reality. Here's meaning number two. Heaven is my hope. So the objective reality to which we long is also called hope. That's another meaning for the word. Here's the third meaning. We say Christ is my only hope for getting to heaven. Meaning he's the one who enables me to inherit that. So you got three meanings for hope. The inner feeling and subjective experience of hope. The objective reality, which is our hope. And the person or events, which we say, like Michael Jordan is the bull's only hope for victory. Well, that's not the victory. The victory is a hope. The feelings rising in the fans is a hope. And he's a hope. So there's three different meanings for the word hope. Which one is meant here? And verse 18 really doesn't leave any doubt about it, does it? Verse 18 says, We have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. That's meaning number two. That is, the anchor says this hope is, in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor, referring back to verse 18, this hope is the future glory, blessing, promise, inheritance, which is out there in heaven guaranteed for us. And he says that's our anchored or our anchor for the soul. So this writer is very eager to teach us that our Subjective hoping is rooted, anchored in an objective hope that's out there. He describes it as sure, steadfast, and one that enters in the veil. Now, that's a strange image. That's what caught my attention here years ago when I was meditating on this passage. you got an anchor. Anchors usually go down in water, not up in temples. But here you got an anchor, big, heavy, strong, unbreakable anchor of the soul, and it's not going down in the water, it's going up into heaven and through a veil. Now what's that? Remember the the Old Testament tabernacle? Had a, a vestibule, and the priest could go in and out there regularly, the showbread and all that. And then there was another veil behind which was the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And you could only go there as a high priest once a year, taking a sacrifice, the blood for the redemption of the people. That's what split when Christ's blood was shed. His rent flesh, Hebrew says, is the opening of the veil. And now he enters into the Holy of Holies where God dwells in his glory and where the Ark of the Covenant is and the anchor is there, hooked on the Ark of the Covenant. That's my picture anyway, it doesn't say that. but It's there, in there, and God's got this anchor hooked and all tied around with this massive chain around the covenant promises of God and God's almighty sovereign hand is on it. So it's not going anywhere. It is sure and steadfast. Now, what what does it mean that Christ went in there? Look at verse 20. Verse 20, where Jesus, this, the, the anchor goes in the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to talk about Melchizedek in the coming weeks because chapter 7 takes that up. But just look at the main point here. He's a high priest and he's gone forever. Unlike those Old Testament priests who died and had to be replaced, who went with their, not their own blood, but the blood of animals, which can never take away sins. They went in on earth. He goes in in heaven. So here's Christ taking his own blood by the power of an indestructible life entering into the holy place, spreading his own blood before the Father on the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for the sins of his people forever. That's the anchor, or that's the ground of the anchor. And that secures for us a future that is bright, a blessing, an inheritance, a hope, a life, and it is as sure as the blood of Christ is valuable. Now, Here's my question. And it's the one that was burning on the airplane as I pondered this thing coming back yesterday. And all yesterday afternoon and on into the evening. I don't know if it would be your question as you read this text, but it's mine. And so that's the one I'll try to answer. Is the anchor of my soul as firmly attached to my soul as it is to the altar of God. Does that concern you? Is the image that we are to have in our minds here that by virtue of the work of Christ, the anchor end of the chain and the rope is firm, steadfast, penetrating the veil, wrapped around the Ark of the Covenant, secured by the almighty hand of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, and it is absolutely immovable, and the rope of the anchor dangles in the air, in front of my face. Is that the picture that that you have? Is is the security being talked about in last week's text and this week's text only one end of the rope? That Christ bought the security of one end of the rope? It's fixed in heaven, it can never break loose. But here at this end, whether I hold on or take hold... I mean, would it encourage you if you were on a boat and somebody said to you, I've got a great anchor so that when the wind blows and it tends to either blow you onto the rocks or blow you out to sea, I've got an anchor for you. And look at it. It's big. It's sharp. When you drop it, it hooks. It won't go anywhere. And then he says, but the rope just lays across the deck. Encouraging? Is that, we're secure. All you have to do is grab it. Hold it like this when the wind is blowing. I'm not encouraged. If that's the image. I'm just not encouraged. This soul is only as secure as both ends are secure. And if all Christ has done is secure one end... And leave to these weak, sinful hands the other end. There ain't no security. And so what I want to do is try to persuade you in the last part of the sermon that the image in this text is that the anchor of the soul is a really unusual anchor and is hooked in the soul as firmly as it is hooked in the holy of holies. That's what I want to try to persuade you. So that you walk out of here this morning as a child of God, feeling both that your anchor is hooked in heaven by virtue of the blood of Christ, pleading your cause before the Father infallibly, and That that anchor is hooked in you and your soul as firmly, as infallibly, as almighty God can possibly hook it. Here are my four reasons for believing that. Number one, look at verse 9 of chapter 6. I'm going to take all of these four arguments from Hebrews, though there are some glorious ones outside of Hebrews. But I think it's safe to stay right here for now. Chapter 6, verse 9. This is rehearsal for those of you who've been around a few weeks. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Now, let me stop and explain the context in case you forgot. He's just given these awful warnings that you can drift away from God. You can be like a field that gets a lot of rain coming down on it and brings up thorns and thistles instead of fruit for the one who planted it. And you can apostatize, forsake God, fall away and be lost. And you can just picture the listeners trembling. Why does he write to us this way? Then he gets to verse 9 and he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany or literally belong to or are possessed by or had by salvation. Now, get this. Think very clearly here. What are the better things? Well, the bad things were falling away, committing apostasy, forsaking the Lord. And he says, but for you, there's going to be better things, meaning you're going to hold on. You're not going to let go. You're going to be hooked in. You're going to make it. You're going to stay on the narrow way. You're going to get to heaven. How do I know? It belongs to salvation. It's not added on by something you do to salvation. Salvation possesses the better things. A person who is in salvation is guaranteed better things than apostasy. Which means if you go down now to verse 19 and picture the anchor, we got an anchor in heaven and it's the anchor of our soul. This salvation that gets me to glory and into the presence of God and joy forever and ever is a salvation that includes, possesses, to which belongs better things than Drifting out to sea or crashing on the rocks. That is, the anchor holding in the boat is as sure as the anchor holding in heaven. I believe that's taught in verse 9. Here's reason number 2. Verse 14 of chapter 3. This is also rehearsal. Let's do it. We need to rehearse these great verses. Chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to look at it. Remember the tense of the verbs here are very, very, very important. We have become partakers of Christ. That's a great statement. We have become partakers, partners, sharers in Christ. We're united to Him. The rope is in us. It's wound around us. We're united to Christ. If we hold fast... The beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say we will become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. Like the holding fast is, oh, i got to hold fast. i got to hold fast because if I don't hold fast, I will become, become someday by some kind of merit of strong holding on a partaker of Jesus. That's not what it says. It says we have become. It's already happened if you're holding fast. Which means that the holding fast is the work of being a sharer in Christ. Becoming a sharer in Christ by faith binds you together with Jesus, which is just another way of saying that the rope is all tied around you and the massive hand of Christ is holding it there and your ship will not go down. It won't go out. It won't go on the rocks. It is as secure there as it is in heaven. We have become sharers and the evidence and proof of it is that we hold fast. We do not hold fast and cause the relationship to come about. I believe that's taught in verse 14 of chapter 3. My anchor is as firmly bound to my soul as it is in heaven. Here's argument number 3, verse 6 of that same chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. You may remember that the comparison is between Moses and Christ, and Christ is compared to... Uh, Moses in that Moses was a part of the house and Christ was the maker and the master of the house. And then he says. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are. Tense is important here again. Whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm to the end now notice again what it does not say it does not say we will become his house if we hold fast Just get that clear it's so important it does not say okay the way to get saved is by getting a hold and holding on and then I become his house this says we are his house Now, if in the future we go on holding fast, which must mean that there's something in the house that evidences itself by the holding on. The holding on is not an independent, self-wrought, John Piper-produced act. It is a house-produced act. He made the house, he masters the house, he dwells in the house, and he takes the hands of the house and he puts them on the rope and he keeps his hands on the hands so that I don't let go. And that's my only hope. If you're holding on this morning to the hope set before you, God has done it. God has done it. Final argument. This is the most important one for me. Chapter 13. Let's go there together. Turn over. Chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. The reason I love this passage so much and it comes back again and again in my thinking is because it's about the new covenant fulfillment. You remember the new covenant? I wrote a Star article about it recently because it's just on my front burner a lot these days for various reasons. And it's very precious to me. I get angry at any teaching or doctrine that threatens or calls into question the preciousness of the New Covenant. You remember the New Covenant? I'll give you a few reminders. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. There's coming a day, Moses says, when I will, God says, circumcise their hearts so that they will love me. God's going to do the heart work. Ezekiel 11:19. 19 I will take out of them the heart of stone and I will put in the heart of flesh and I will cause them to walk in my statutes. God will do the heart work in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will write my law upon their hearts and put my statutes within them. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That is, they will not let go of the rope. That's my pledge in the new covenant. Luke 22, 20, Jesus says, at the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant by my blood. So when Christ died, He bought the new covenant. He sealed it. He secured it. The new covenant promises are those, are yours in Christ. If you're covered with the blood, justified by the blood, the new covenant is yours. Now, that means that the taking hold of the rope on the deck and the being bound up with it was bought by jesus i'll read it let's look at these verses verses 20 to 21 of chapter 13 hebrews now the god of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant there it is again the blood Of the eternal. It's not a covenant that's gonna abort. It's not a covenant that's gonna be replaced. The blood of the eternal covenant. Even Jesus our Lord. May this God, who brought up this shepherd, by this blood, may this God equip you with every good thing to do His will. Now just stop right there. If you think this morning that you can do the will of God, Without being equipped by God through the everlasting covenant, you're arrogant. You don't know your sinful condition, and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the forces of the world. You must be blind. Because the Bible throughout teaches, yes, you must do. And no, you cannot do. But yes, God enables you to do, and you must do. that's the new covenant. Equip you with everything good to do His will. Now here it gets more powerful. Working in us. There's where the rope is dangling, folks. And it ain't dangling. It ain't dangling. Working in us, in us, that which is pleasing in His sight. Now stop there. we got more to read, but stop there. What pleases God when he comes to you and says, take hold of your hope? Obedience pleases God. Taking hold of it pleases God. Who enables you to do that? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God does. Now, here's the most important phrase. Through Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of verses 20 and 21, we're not left to wonder too much what the through Jesus Christ means. Because we've just heard that he's the great shepherd of the sheep and he shed the blood of the eternal covenant And that covenant was the promise that says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will write my law on your heart. I will circumcise you so that you love me. I will put the fear of you in me. I will not let you turn from me. That's what he bought and that's what is wrought. And therefore, is it any wonder that at the end of the verse it says, to whom? That is to this Christ be the glory. Not to John Piper in his hands. Holding on to the rope so that when I get to heaven, God says, nice hands, good biceps, too bad the other weaklings couldn't do it. There won't be any words like that in heaven. Jesus will get the glory that you held on because Jesus wrought your holding on. The rope is not lying across the deck. It's tied everywhere. It's tied everywhere. Your soul is tied. Your heart is tied. Your mind is tied. Your money is tied. Your hands are tied. And you're rising into the Holy of Holies. What's at stake here is the blood of Jesus. What's at stake is the new covenant. One last question. If this is true, if if the anchor is in the Holy of Holies wrapped around the Ark of the Covenant and God's almighty hand is on it making it secure... And if the other end of the anchor is in my soul and in my mind, my heart, and has bound me by new covenant promises to God, why does God command me at the cost of my life to take hold of the rope? And here's the answer. What Christ bought when he shed his blood for me and you was not freedom from having to hold on, but the enabling power to hold on. What he bought for me was not the nullification of my will to hold on, but the empowering of my will to hold on, freeing of my will to hold on. What he bought for me was not the canceling of the commandment that I must hold on, but the fulfillment of the commandment that I must hold on. What he bought for me was not the end of small group exhortation as though it were superfluous, but the triumph of exhortation so that it can be successful in our small groups. I close with this word because when I read this last night as I was finishing up, I said, there it is. There it is. They'll get it. If I say this, they'll get it. (laughs) Oh, this is so close to the center of Christianity. If you get this, you've got it all. You've got the new covenant and the preciousness of being taken hold of by Jesus. Here it is. When Christ died for you, He bought for you the capacity and the will to do what Paul did in Philippians 3:12 We all should know this verse. I know most of you don't. It's not one that you put on a list very often. I don't know if you got it on our list, David. Paul said, "Not that I have already obtained nor am already perfect, but I Take hold, there's the image, I take hold of that for which I have been taken hold of by Christ. Remember that verse? It's in the Bible. I mean, sometimes verses are so theologically perfectly divine designed to wrap up a sermon that you wonder, oh, this is wonderful. Let me say it again because this is your life. As you go out of here this morning, I want you to feel two things. I want you to feel an impulse. I must reach out and take hold on hope. And I want you to feel the impulse. And what else can I do? For I have been taken hold of... By an almighty Christ. So here it is. Not that I have already attained, nor am already perfect, but I take hold of that for which I have been taken hold of by Christ. The rope is not dangling out of heaven. It's not dangling. It's bound around the soul. And you are as secure at one end as you are at the other end because the new covenant had a sin-forgiving component and a sinner-transforming component. And Christ bought both of them. And you're as secure as His blood is valuable. Oh Christ, I pray that You would shed Your benediction and blessing upon this people and open their eyes to the fixedness and the certainty and the steadfastness and the surety of both ends of the anchor in the heavenlies, the holy of holies, and in their own soul by virtue of an unbreakable, oath-bound, new covenant promise. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.